Oh, yes. It's that time again. Time to gather around the table with friends and family. I don't know about you, but in my family, especially for us grandchildren, Thanksgiving is all about Granny's macaroni and cheese. It's not just about eating it. It's about the rite of passage, of being the youngest grandchild for as long as you can, and being told that that entire tray of macaroni and cheese is for you. And then being an adult grandchild and believing still that Granny made that mac and cheese just for you. And that's the other thing, it takes time. You can't make a macaroni and cheese in like 45 minutes. Oh no, 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 no. But, you know, if you're really doing it right, that's a couple hours of not easy labor. It's hard to imagine that macaroni and cheese didn't just always exist. Someone had to put that together for the first time in order for us to get together and do it every time. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm producer Lauren Francis, sitting in for Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, how James Hemings brought baked macaroni and cheese to America. And later, how COVID shutdown of restaurants brought one chef closer to the history of her favorite treat. But first, during his travels to France as America's French ambassador, Thomas Jefferson brought his chef, James Hemings. Hemings learned from the finest French chefs and brought macaroni and cheese back to the colonies in a way they'd never before seen, baked. Deb Freeman is a food historian and the host of Setting the Table, a podcast that explores the histories of African-American foodways. She says that Hemings is America's first chef de cuisine. So Deb, is macaroni and cheese on the table at your Thanksgiving dinner? Oh, absolutely. I think that there would be a riot if there wasn't macaroni <laughs> and cheese at, at our table. I think that um, it's become so ingrained with special occasions that it's a mainstay. It's just as important as the turkey and the stuffing. So to me, I mean, macaroni and cheese is one of those dishes that I almost take for granted that it came mm -hmm. from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Someone had to make that first. Will you introduce us to the man who brought macaroni and cheese to the United States? Yeah, I'm more than happy to do it because I think everyone needs to be talking about James Hemings mm -hmm. and his contribution to American cuisine. He's the first chef de cuisine of America, and he is an enslaved man. Mm -hmm. um, he was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he's the first American to go over to France to train in culinary arts, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so he goes to France in 1784, and he learns from really just the, some of the best chefs in, in Paris at the time. And so when he comes back, he brings with him this incredible wealth of information. And so, you know, it's not only macaroni and cheese, it's French fries, it's mm -hmm. whipped cream, it's meringue, it's ice cream. So he's bringing, he's introducing these things to America. That is James Hemings. And so he brought back macaroni and cheese in a way that had not been introduced to America and the colonies until he started making it. So he's an extraordinary man. So my understanding is that the specific way that James Hemings was making macaroni and cheese was a bit more of like a custard or, or sort mm -hmm. of like a macaroni pie. Can you tell me a bit about that? Like, how did he approach that dish? Yeah, so basically, you know, there are English recipes that still exist, uh, for example, and obviously Italians were doing this as well, but mm -hmm. uh, basically it would be closer to what your stovetop kind of macaroni cheese would be. Um, so it's, it's not going to mm -hmm. have kind of a form. It was kind of soupy. <laughs> if we're being honest, mm -hmm. uh, before him. And so the other thing that he does that's really interesting that I have not found prior to Hemings is that he's essentially baking it. I'm using that word huh. quotation because there weren't ovens as we know there as ovens. Okay. But when he would put it in the hearth, you know, the, the uh, cast iron kind mm -hmm. of 
pot, he's covering it with the coals and surrounding it with the coals. And so essentially he's baking it. And so that did not exist until Hemings. And so when that gets introduced in the Virginia Housewife cookbook that Mary Randolph wrote um, in 1824, she's using his recipe. And so I'm curious... What was the draw, I guess, for Thomas Jefferson to go to France and and take his Mm -hmm. chef in the first place? Yeah, so Jefferson was the ambassador to to France. And so that obviously meant that he needed to be in Paris. Um, And so it's no secret that Jefferson, you know, was a foodie and enjoyed Mm -hmm. Italian food, enjoyed French food. And so he knew that when he came back, he did not want to stop eating that way. I mean, in, in all frankness, I've been to Paris if I could have a chef, you know, um, I, I would bring back a French chef myself. Um, but yeah, <laughs> one note that I'd like to say, though, I think is interesting is mm-hmm. is a little unclear whether or not him baking it, and again, in the quotations, right. if that was a Hemings invention or if he learned that from France. That part is still, right. we haven't been able to figure that mm-hmm. out. Either way, it's still a new introduction to how it's mm-hmm. being cooked in America. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I'd like to think, you know, that might have been his, his spin on it. Can you tell me a bit, Deb, about how Hemings would have been preparing his macaroni and cheese? First and foremost, he is salting the water. He's flavoring the water. But the other interesting thing is that it's half milk, half water. So, Mm. you know, off rip, it's already going to be this really creamy experience with the flavoring. And so after that pasta is cooked in in the boiling water, then the cheese is layered on it. And so you're layering the cheese on top of that, um, on top of that cooked pasta. At that point, Again, this is where it varies from your your British um, and, and Italian ways. Then that's put into, a top is put on it and coals are put around it in the hearth and it's slowly cooked until it's bubbling and it's hot and the cheese is melted and permeated. And, and so I think it's just really, again, it's really interesting, this addition of baking it. Um, I, I think that's a point that cannot be overstated. So you mentioned that macaroni and cheese really became popular when Mary Randolph included it in the Virginia Housewife cookbook. Mm -hmm. Is that really the moment when the recipe becomes separated from James Hemings? Sure. You know, even though he was literate, he could read and write. We had, you know, there are some documents at Monticello that survived that are actually in his hand. Not very many, but a few. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he didn't write a cookbook, but, you know, you know, who writes your story? Like, that's what will make, remain. That's what becomes right. the narrative, you know. Um, not to quote the Hamilton musical, but that's right. that's <laughs> true, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but, yeah, because I contend that a lot of the recipes that were in the Virginia Housewife were James Hemings um, because a lot mm-hmm. of them preparation is very similar to how a French person would cook, you know, with a mm-hmm. souffle and that sort of thing. Where would this have come from? <laughs> you know, right. Mary, you know, she didn't go to France. Right, you know, right. She wasn't saying. Exactly. Exactly. So where else would this, I mean, you know, and she's in close proximity because after Jefferson dies, mm-hmm. you know, she's running the household for a time being and she's constantly there for dinner. So she would have known who James Hemings was. She would have been very familiar with what was going on, you know, in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So that being said, yes, I think that's where where it happens. And so, you know, as that's being spread, you know, I think over time it gets lost to, you know, even to Mary Randolph because, you know, interpretations were put in cookbooks throughout the country after mm-hmm. that. You know, he was an enslavement. He labor came free. But as an enslaved, you know, black person, no, he's not necessarily going to get that credit. Something that I came across that was really interesting to me um, was this idea that probably part of how James's recipes were able to spread is because, you know, when you have George Washington, for example, come to Monticello, he's mm-hmm. coming with his, you know, quote unquote staff of enslaved mm-hmm. people. Right. And they're mm-hmm. not going to the same kitchen as Washington. So they're mm-hmm. kind of maybe interacting with James a bit more. Do you think maybe that could be part of how recipes and traditions were passed? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's probably one way, you know, the interaction between who's working in the kitchen and then, you know, they are 
not necessarily, you know, living in Monticello, but mm-hmm. on Mulberry Road, which is where the enslaved people lived. So they're mm-hmm. taking that knowledge back to their homes. Um, so I think that there's probably, you know, that trifecta that's all going on at the same time. So I'm curious, why was James Hemings plucked to do this job of being a chef? Mm. Well, so <laughs> he he was known to be intelligent and bright, but here's the the other you know kind of ugly piece of it. He is actually the half sibling of Jefferson's wife. Um, wow! <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that he would have known mm-hmm. about James. He would have interacted with James in some capacity. So it may have been proximity, and because James was known to be very smart. What do you think that American cuisine would look like if credit were and had always been given where it was due? Oh, my goodness. I think it would be so much richer. You know, I think you know, there are so many dishes that have gone through African-American hands. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it would be really interesting to see, you know, where where's the James Hemings movie? You know, mm-hmm. where are the women in Gordonsville who really elevate fried chicken to what it is? Where's their mm-hmm. show? Where's their story? Mm-hmm. Where's their prestige drama right. on HBO? Right. Um, yeah. So I think it would be a lot richer. You know, and I think we would all be better for it. So I want to get into the real meat of the conversation, which is how do you like to prepare your macaroni and cheese? <laughs> well, I mean, there's only one correct answer, in my opinion. Okay. And, and it's baked. Yeah. There, you know, yeah. I, you know and the, <laughs> I mean, I am not a stovetop macaroni and cheese person. That is not even an mm-hmm. option. Don't bring it to me. Don't right. talk to me about creamy mac and cheese. <laughs> it's just uncomfortable. It's, it's a lie. I don't even know what that is. That's, that's just ridiculous. But, you know, but it has to be, you know, a bechamel sauce that, you know, that you're mm-hmm. at the stove stirring and you're mm-hmm. adding the milk and the different cheeses um, and, you know, and you're seasoning from start to finish. You're seasoning the pasta and even the pasta water. So that's, you know, salted. I, I mean, I'm actually, I think my maybe drooling a little bit just thinking about <laughs> it um, and thinking like, how am I going to get some mac and cheese right now? Right, right. Like, what's my day look like? Do I have exactly, the time? Exactly, exactly. And that's the other thing. It takes time. You mm-hmm. can't make a macaroni and cheese mm-hmm. in like 45 minutes. Oh, no, 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 no. Right. The, you know, if you're really doing it right, that's a couple hours of not easy labor. Like, right. it gets easy once you put it in the oven, but you're staying at that stove stirring for a minute. I will admit that there's a place called Original Ronnie's Barbecue, and it's just outside of Richmond. Mm-hmm. You can only get macaroni and cheese there on Sunday, and the guy there, his name is Scooty. This man makes the best macaroni and cheese I've ever had in my entire life, mm. and I'm talking better than my family. I'm talking about <laughs> better than anybody I know. I don't know what this man is doing, but mm. if anybody wants some good mac and cheese, that's where they need to go because it's it's simply... It puts everything I've ever had to shame. You know, Deb, I'm really jealous hearing you say that because mm-hmm. I used to live right by Ronnie's Barbecue. Are you serious? And, yeah, and I would try because, you know, it shows up on the menu mm-hmm. like macaroni's an option, but it's Sunday only. And I don't yep. think in that full year of living over there, I think every time that I would try to go get the macaroni, it would be sold out already. Oh, um, Yeah, you have to go when it's open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, first of all, like you can't wait until they're about to close because they're not right. gonna have it. It's just not even an option. I, I'm really gonna need this man to start making pants because I just buy like the large size <laughs> for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I buy like four of them. I'm telling you, if you ever ever get a chance to go back and it's early on Sunday, you gotta try it. Okay. It's extraordinary. I, I might really. have to go ahead and schedule that for this I'm Sunday. Saying, so I'm saying. I can to let tell you know. Because, you. You know, Deb, this is like going to be the test. I'm going to find out who you are when I try this macaroni well, and cheese. I have I have said this to every person I know. And, and trust me, trust me, I, I really do want you to go on Sunday because it's it's a life changing bite of food. It's delicious. Okay. Okay. Wow. Very high praise. Yes. Yes. So it really the best. So I want to end on a a bit of controversy Uh because we know that James Hemings is who brought this, you know, this French and American thing together in his macaroni and cheese. Mm -hmm. Can we say, Deb? 
can we as native Virginians, can we say <laughs> that macaroni and cheese was born in Virginia? Yes, I stand by that. I, <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind that the way that we that we see macaroni and cheese today, if he had not brought that back in the way that he did, mm-hmm. Mary Randolph would not have put it in her cookbook, which then spreads out all these different versions throughout the country. I mean, all of that, if you trace mm-hmm. it back, goes to James Hemings. And so, yes, 100% stand behind that. Absolutely. All right. Well, only thing left to do now is make the T-shirts and <laughs> just do with whatever comes. <laughs> That's, I mean, come at me, bro, as they yeah, say. Yeah, right. I mean, what? It's there. We don't I'm have a great big archive, but we do have that. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's it's not hard to put that together. I stand right. behind it. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Deb, for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Deb Freeman is a food historian and the host of Setting the Table, a podcast that explores the histories and stories of African-American cuisine and foodways. Going downtown to the farmer's market with her big mama was always a treat for Amethyst Ganaway. There were endless stalls of vendors, but she was always looking for her bag of gold, the sweet honey crunch of Benny wafers. Ganaway is a chef, food writer, and recipe developer of low country descent. After working in kitchens for a decade, COVID-19 forced her to pivot. She took the time to learn more about ingredients she'd been using, including the Benny seeds at the heart of her bag of gold. What's on your Thanksgiving spread this year? Jesus. You ready for this? I'm ready. All right. We got turkey wings, two ducks, quail, some sort of red meat, some sort of goat or oxtail, pernil, greens, green beans and potatoes, sweet potatoes, Brussels sprouts, mac and cheese, dirty rice, red rice, white rice, crab rice, seafood dressing, granny style dressing, cornbread, seafood salad, potato salad, roasted baby potatoes, nopales, squash pie, banana pudding, red velvet pound cake, plain butter pound cake, ice cream, tarts. We're probably going to order some stuff from Gold Belly, peach cobbler, bread pudding and cranberry sauce, canned and fresh. And then we're also going to probably have little accoutrements on the side for okay. just like, you know, little charcuterie board, croissants, fresh fruit, pastries, quiches, things like that to kind of get the day started, yeah. you know, because we don't eat until like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. So that is the running list so far. So far. Of what we will have for Thanksgiving this year. So are you cooking all of that? Absolutely not. Um, so the the everything is being kind of split up mostly between me and one of my aunts. Okay. And um, my grandmother has said that she is apparently not cooking this year. She oh. just wants to sit back and relax. And I told her she's a dang on lie. <laughs> we usually start the, the morning before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my grandmother, she likes to do like her goat or her lamb or that's what she always starts at the day before. So then by the next day, it's nice and tender and super falling off the bone. So we'll do a lot of that stuff, get it out the way. But like macaroni and cheese, other stuff where we have to do the day of, but then all of our desserts are going to be done the day before. Is that the list every year? Like how much of that is like the staples? That is pretty much our running list every year. But we definitely added a couple things. We don't do Christmas in my family. So we try to incorporate... A lot of the things maybe that you would have on your Christmas dinner table. So you worked in restaurant kitchens in South Carolina, Georgia, and New Mexico. But in 2019, COVID came and shut all that down. But it also opened up a lot for you because you had time. And you started to research the histories of some of the ingredients you've been using. So tell me about like kind of how you started, you know, investigating more and and just that journey. Yeah, so... You know, 2019, like you said, COVID, uh, COVID happened, but also a lot of social unrest, right? There was the big, obviously, Black Lives Matter campaign, George Floyd's death. In Charleston, we had people who also were murdered by the police. So it was a, it was a really, like, one, an emotional time, but two, a time where, like you said, I had time to step back out of the kitchen and really dig into the cultural, historical, anthropological sides of food mm-hmm. and foodways and what that means in a bigger context outside of just a kitchen or just outside of a restaurant or mm-hmm. just outside of what you cook at home. Um, and that's when I also realized, like, 
I and obviously enjoy making food. Right. But I I like talking about it. I mm-hmm. like writing about mm-hmm. it. That kind of put the battery in my back to be able to like one pivot again and has some sort of source of income, right. but just also be able to be a voice as a black food writer or foodie or food person. So one of the ingredients that you started to research more during that time was the Benny seed, which of course is behind your favorite, the Benny wafer. Tell me about that. This is the crazy thing is when you grow up in the culture or you grow up with certain foods, you literally don't think about the history or the origins or anything like that, right? It's just what you know. Right, it's with you. It's with me. So I never, never thought to go look at what is what is a Benny or what is Benny or what is where did this come from? Because it was just always there. Yeah. But as I as I really started to dig into what is this? Why mm-hmm. is it so special? Mm-hmm. Why don't why don't I see it anywhere else in the yeah. world? Anywhere else in the country? Initially, I was kind of told that oh well, Benny is just a sesame seed. It's just like whatever sesame seed. Mm. And then I said, nah, there's got to be more to it than that. And I came to learn that Benny it is a sesame seed. It is sesame, but my, I guess, culinary knowledge had always told me that sesame came someplace from Asia. Okay. And that's wrong. Bene is one of the oldest cultivated crops that come from Africa. It originated mm-hmm. in sub-Saharan Africa. Bene is so special because just like so many other crops that originated in Africa that were brought to the Americas by the enslaved, served many specific purposes, whether that be culturally or in the culinary aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. So... Bene, it's a it's a, an extremely drought resistant crop. You can mm. pretty much just throw it out there and it grows on its own. It helps fix your soil. It can be grown mm. alongside other crops, right? So, is this an, a, a miracle ingredient? And I had only been familiar with it in the context of a Benny wafer, but when you start really digging into it, you find that you know you can. This is the oldest ingredient that was made into an mm. oil. Um, wow, but the the oldest one. I got to learn that, you know, it was used as a thickener for soups and stews. You can make it into a million different things, right? And that for me was like, especially as a chef, was the most kind of eye-opening thing again because I'd only seen it used in that one context. Right. Never seen it used in anything else. How does it look compared to a sesame seed? Compared to the probably the -the run-of-the-mill, just kind of white sesame seed you might see like on a burger bun, it's much smaller. Usually, they're a little darker, more tan, golden brown mm-hmm. in color. You can you can find some that are on on the paler side or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they're much smaller and they're they have this naturally toasted kind of flavor already. They're very mm-hmm. nutty. They're a little sweet. Like I said, it's very reminiscent of like honey notes, vanilla e. It's for me when I have just like a regular sesame seed, I don't taste anything. Right. It's either, there mainly. Yeah. It's, it's mainly there for texture, in my opinion. But mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. But Benet can stand on its own. People are very quick to say, well, no, it's just sesame. Oh, no, it's just this. And it's not. It is its own thing. It's special. And to to come to find out, too, that like Benet was used like so many other ingredients in West Africa, like rice, like fonio. Um, It was used in cultural aspects. So it was very, you know, highly revered Mm -hmm. by our ancestors, Mm -hmm. by people still in West Africa and obviously by the Gullah Geechee people. Was it difficult to find the history? I know a lot of histories can be more so oral uh, for me, honestly, yes. It was because, like you said, so much of our history as Black people, as Black Americans specifically, is oral. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to, yes, find like that hard, you know, something in a book necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Like, you could see, you'll see Bene Seeds definitely in old cookbooks and things like that. But my best way of being able to find out more about it was just speaking directly to people who knew about it, who mm-hmm. have already been, like, again, who've already been doing the work. I was able to connect with other historians and, and especially historians in South Carolina or West African chefs um, who would who basically were able to kind of tell me more and point me in the right direction about learning about it. So I want to go back in time. Okay. To little baby Amethyst. Oh, God. Going downtown okay. with your big mama yeah. to get some Benny wafers. Tell yeah. me about, like, paint the picture for me. You're going down there. Yeah. You're excited. Like, what are you looking forward to? Like, that taste. Like, what is it about those wafers that you love? So, my really first experience with Benet wafers specifically is there's a there's a specific company in Charleston that makes them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, our downtown Charleston area is historic. It's beautiful. It's buildings made in 16, 1700. You know, mm-hmm. just beautiful. Cobblestone streets. And we had... 
or we have an open air market. It's much fancier now. They've upgraded in the past couple of years. But me as a child, when I went, it was still wooden stalls. We are told that that's no, not where they sold slaves at. But it's kind of a local thing of like, come on now, like really. Right. But um, it's been that way. The, my It's looked almost exactly the same almost my entire life until recently. It's huge open air market. And you'll see, I mean, just stalls and stalls and stalls and stalls of vineyards. But you would see a lot of Gullah people there specifically selling their wares, selling their food, uh, making sweet grass baskets, having art, things like that there. And it was always just a little treat to get a bag of vinegar wafers. And it's a small, you know, you get a little small bag or whatever. And it was such a a unique experience because I'd never had something that had that texture, that taste, something that was, you could tell is naturally sweet mm-hmm. and, and not like candy sweet. It's just like honey almost. Mm-hmm. Um, the texture was on point and getting that, like I said, getting that bag was like getting like a little bag of gold. It was a treat and, yeah. and I would savor and I still do. Like I have to find myself trying to control myself, not eating an entire bag in one sitting because it's easy. They're, they're small. They're about the size maybe of a quarter or so. So you could literally find yourself just popping them in your mouth, right? And and for me, I also grew up with my granny for the most part of my life. So I like old people candy. Are you using benet seeds in any of your Thanksgiving dishes this year? You know, I think that I should. I think there's a couple of different places that we can incorporate it. Like we like to have brittles. Like, you know, most people mm-hmm, probably have like mm-hmm. a pecan or, or a um, peanut brittle or whatever like that. But there's benet brittle and it's bomb. Yeah. Or maybe if like on top of our uh, roasted green meats or something like that, just use that as a, a topping. Or I might make my benet seed dressing because we, we still like to have like our salads. Or something. Just mm-hmm, something to kind mm-hmm. of help with the heaviness right. of our low vibrational yep, plates. <laughs> of our low vibrational right. plates, right? So um, it's not something that typically I have put in to to Thanksgiving specifically, mm-hmm. but I have definitely made it a priority to start adding and incorporating more West African, more African ingredients into my kind of everyday mm-hmm. culinary use. So outside of Thanksgiving, how do you like to use benet seeds? Man, so I, I love making brittle I love using benet as a thickener in soups or in stews, especially when you have something like a groundnut or a peanut soup. Mm. It's it's great to be in there and it's great to have on top of it because it just kind of rounds out a lot of different flavors and, and, and ingredients that you might have in your dish. Um, but honestly, my favorite way is still benet wafers. Yeah. Whether that's the ones I buy from the store or the ones I choose to make at home. Because I think that it brings out so much of its natural flavor and it mm-hmm. stands on its own so beautifully. Amethyst Ganaway is a chef, food writer, recipe developer, and content creator of Low Country Descent. She is the 2020 and 2021 recipient of the Lidam Descoffier International Legacy Culinary Award. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In the early 1700s, many people were taken captive from the rice-growing areas of West Africa. Once they arrived in America, they were called slaves, and they were used to transform South Carolina's sea islands into a gold coast, wealthy with rice and other crops. The people who survived this torment and their descendants are often called Geechee, or Gullah, or Gullah Geechee. In a lot of places, Gullah Geechee people in the Low Country, which is the coastal regions of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, were able to retain their history because they were so segregated amongst themselves. Chef B.J. Dennis is a Gullah Geechee chef from Charleston, South Carolina. He says that the rice plantations were so vast that their remnants can be seen from outer space today. While rice is often considered something that can be eaten daily, Dennis eats with the seasons and honors rice as his elders did. It's only for Sunday dinner. Dennis was in Richmond, cooking a meal for the Africana Film Festival. I got a chance to speak with him in between his preparations of baked squash casserole, low country shrimp and crab stew, and gullah tomato perlo. So I got to make like the crab and shrimp stew tomorrow. And then um, 
the chicken's already seasoned, so I just gotta cook it off. Yeah, and, and that's pretty much it. And just reheat things and get things there. So the Low Country is the coastal region of South Carolina. Actually, the Low Country runs uh, mainly from South Carolina into Georgia. The Gullah Geechee are those who were enslaved from parts of Western Central Africa who came to the Low Country pri primarily for their knowledge of rice growing. Mm. Um, rice was the commodity crop of colonial South Carolina. Um, and people may, people may or may not know that Charleston was the richest city in the colonies. Mm -hmm. Hence why the, why the Civil War started in Charleston. And that main income was rice. And that rice was grown by the enslaved um, who had the knowledge of rice growing from West Africa and Central Africa. Mm. But as a kid, low country just meant home to BJ. You know, you just grew up in it, honestly. You just, you live it. You know, you saw that you ate a lot of seafood. Um, you know, crabbing, people going fishing, you know, you just riding down the, ride down the road, people on the side of the rivers, throwing cast nets, um, people coming to your neighborhood, selling shrimp and fish and crab. So, you know, um, very heavily seafood based. Um, and obviously just, you know, you don't really recognize the magnitude of where you're at mm -hmm. until like you leave or start to get a little older and see you know, where everybody else is talking about and you kind of look back at where you're from and like, okay, I, I get it. So, I mean, a lot of flooding because mm -hmm. it floods a lot mm -hmm. um, down, down back home, so. When he traveled to West Africa, he was shocked to find that it looked like home. It's hard to describe, it's beautiful. Um, well, when I was in Benin, like the, like the coastal regions, um, you, know, you know, one of the old kind of stories is say that a lot of enslaved when they were brought across thought it was a cruel joke because like, the landscape looked just like where they were from. So it was almost like, what happened? Like, you took me on a boat to bring me back to where I'm from. But they were in a whole different world. But the landscape was very different, I mean, very similar, excuse me. You know, from the, the marsh to the coastal, like, the landscape, the, the, the scenery. Um, only thing I didn't see over there was the moss that hangs from the trees that we have back home a lot. So Gullah Geechee cuisine is the queen mother of low country cuisine. Then you have low country food, and then you have soul food. Well, I always say this, okay, so the low country encompasses, you know, I always say Gala food is slightly different from low country too. Okay. Because Gala, Gala, Gala Geechee cuisine to me is the queen mother of low country cuisine. Okay. Because it's the architect, the backbone of that style of cooking. Low country food, um, low country and Gala, the difference is I think in, in the Gala culture, there's not as much dairy, and uh, you, hence you see uh, more seafood forward in a lot of the dishes. And, and it's a slight difference because, like I said, Gullah food is the queen mother of low country cuisine. But I think the difference between soul food and low country is, I would say, honestly, the agrarian uh, nuances in, of our culture. In our truest form, Gullah food is very seasonal from the earth, from the sea, from the land. Um, I think soul food was that migration of us to, you know, up north, the Midwest, mm. the West Coast, and it was that iteration of what you could still have, or mainly the celebratory foods, you know, like macaroni and cheese, the fried chicken. Um, you know, you didn't get those same nuanced things like the different types of greens. So, you know, you might mainly saw a lot of collard greens. Um, that you still see up north, but like all the different type of field peas that we eat down south, you didn't really see that in the mainstream. Now, I will say that it was still like cultural exchange. You know, people will go up north and take the watermelons and take the okra because, you know, okra doesn't do too well up north, especially when you get to like New York and Philly. It's very harder to grow because it's such a shorter mm -hmm. season. Right. Um, but then you also had your families who were coming down south and they made sure to pack those dry peas and, you know, the butter beans, the, the different cow peas, you know, made sure they would get these things, you know, like the homemade backyard wine, like the muscadine, yeah. the scope, nah, mm -hmm. you know, the, what we call them, bow grapes or bullets, you know, things like that. So there was also that exchange. But 
in the mainstream and the restaurants and stuff, yeah, you will see, you know, I would say our celebratory foods, which is soul food, uh, low country food, like I said, it's from the land, from the sea. You're not going to see like, you're really not going to see like local oyster perlo, oyster rice, when you, if you migrate up north. I mean, oysters, even though you can get oysters up north, our oysters are very different back home. And they are really, um, they, they do better cooked in different dishes, mm -hmm. you know, from oyster dressing to oyster rice to um, oyster stuffing. Um, so, you know, I think that was the differences, you know, the cultural uh, exchange was still there, but the products wasn't. So low country food, you're going to see, now you want to see the fried chicken, you want to see mac and cheese, but you want to see all these different rice dishes that were celebrated. You want to see the blue crab. You want to see the Beaufort stew, which people know as uh, Frogmore stew. You know, Frogmore is an actual town mm -hmm. on the sea mm -hmm. islands. So you want to see, you know, these cultural nuances of things that you can only get in the low country. So I think that's the biggest difference. But what remains the same is that all of these cuisines were very plant forward. In its truest form, yes. You know, I think the more that we, quote unquote, become uh, separated from our agrarian roots, our, our, our agricultural roots, you know, and the more that we've been able to have access you know, financially, mm -hmm. the more we've let go. You know, that you didn't have at a time when you didn't, if you raised your animal, you didn't have, you know, everyday pork on the plate, mm -hmm. you know. You saw a lot of more, lot, lot more seafood, obviously, because that was always there. Um, and then the vegetables was always very important. Um, you know, like smoked, like pork was usually usually used as a side meat, smoked. You know, in the wintertime, the slaughter, you put the different parts in the smoke, you cure it and put it in the smokehouse. And that was kind of so like almost like a seasoning to your pot, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. You know, now we have access to so everybody eating these things like every day. Right. You know, like fried chicken. You know, fried chicken was a special thing. Even me as a kid, I knew that I didn't eat fried chicken every day or every week. I knew that maybe once or twice a month, mom had the chicken in the refrigerator on Friday already seasoned. Mm -hmm. I knew Sunday that was going to be fried. But, you know, it was the string beans, you know, the snap beans, you know, the field peas, the okra, the squash, the tomato, the cucumbers. You know, you walk in the house, there's always a little bowl of cucumber and tomato just sitting there mm -hmm. for you to snack on. Mm -hmm. You know, the fruit, you know, the grapes, the peaches, the watermelon, the cantaloupe, mm -hmm. um, you know, the berries. So I think what's happened is access and a disconnect to mm -hmm. our cultural mm -hmm. food, our cultural food history. Like one rapper who thought beans were slave food. I, I can remember, I, I know it was some rapper who posted, he was from, from Louisiana, he posted um, eating that good old, you know, it was uh, like, it was like, I can't remember what beans it was. It was some, mm -hmm. some beans and something else. And somebody commented, oh, that's slave food. Mm -hmm. You got all that money, why are you eating that slave food? Well, copies came with us and they're very delicious. And when done properly, they're very nutritious. Mm -hmm. You know, so how's that slave food? Like... We got to get out this notion that things are slave food. Okra is not slave food, right. you know. Greens are not, it's not slave food, right. you know. You know, the the types of wheat that we eat now, you know, the the types, the, the grits. The grits you get in the store are nothing like grits that our, our grandparents had, mm. you know, because they had to grow that corn. They had to have, there were community mills that milled it, you know, that went through the proper channels of processing to make sure the, nu the nutrient, nutrient level came out of that corn. Oh. You know, now you get corn out, the, I mean, grits out the store, quick grits, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, they're bleach with all these different chemicals inside of it. Same with the rice. You know, rice wasn't something that, you know, we have a stigma saying that we get people eat rice every day. And I would say, yeah, these days, that's something that you see. My, gra my grandparents, that was a different life for them. Rice might have been eaten only once a week, and that was on Sunday because it was very, uh, it was a celebratory right. thing. It was something that, cer yes, ceremonious. So when you start to become a quote-unquote more mainstream Americanized, right. you say, oh, I want, I want my mac and cheese and my fried chicken and, 
you know, and those things are cool, but it's not something you're supposed to be having every day. No, you shouldn't eat that every day. But we ate good when BJ was in town. Here's what he had on the menu for the Geechee, Gardens, and Gourds, a taste of liberation dinner as a part of the Africana Film Festival. So we have tomato perlo, which, you know, everybody mainstream back in Charleston, people in the low country call it red rice. There's always a debate between Savannah and Charleston. Savannah say they, they, they lay clean the red rice. Um, I say Charleston got the best red rice. Hmm. But in, in the truth form, it's a one of the perlo dishes. It's a tomato perlo because it's tomato based. And red rice is the, I call it the daughter of Chabujin or jollof. You know, Chabujin is what the Senegalese call their jollof, where it originated with the Jola people. Mm-hmm. And I've been in Casamas, and um, that's where that dish originated. So Chabujin um, is the, and Chabujin can also be brown, but, you know, people think of jollof, they think of the red color. Right. So I'm serving tomato perlo today. Typically, you have a lot of sausage and stuff in it. And I think that's because the spices and the sausage gives flavor. So we don't have that today. I spiced it um, with a lot of different little spices in there. So it's a vegan red rice or so vegan tomato perlo. And the beautiful tomatoes came from the, the farmers out in this region. Y'all got some dope, dope, dope. Daron, who will mm-hmm. be there, he's, man, he's, he's something serious. Yeah. Um, so he brought the vegetables from his farm and uh, Sankofa farms Word. and some other. I love that spot. Yeah. So it's, um, we're using, you know, as local as possible. So we got the rice, and the, the rice is actually Carolina gold rice, the rice that our ancestors brought that made Charleston really rich. That rice actually in the colonial period was eaten, was cherished by the emperor of China. You right there say, damn, and, you know, Chinese lady love their rice, but that rice was shipped all the way to China, and the king of England also loved that rice in the colonial period. So we're using Carolina gold rice for that. Um, we also have, um, they brought some beautiful zucchini and squash. I made a play on baked squash casserole. Um, I'm not a very, I'm not a big dairy person, especially with cheese. So most squash casserole, we see a lot of cheese in it. This has no cheese. I use um, some heirloom corn flour as kind of the binder. So it's almost, um, it's, it's almost a play like on a spoon bread, but with squash and zucchini in it and some onions and some seasoning. Um, we got that. We got. I'm doing an okra and corn succotash. I'm gonna throw some tomatoes in that mix too. Beautiful okra. Obviously, I'm an okra fanatic, mm-hmm. and you know they brought some beautiful okra. Um, from some of the farms in the region. We got that. We having some barbecue chicken, um, doing a Carolina Gold barbecue sauce. And people don't realize that South Carolina, you know, we we do, bar- I'm, I know I'm in Virginia, and I'm got some slight for this. <laughs> but right. that's how kind of the barbecue is something else. And we always get um, stigmatized with the mustard-based sauce. Okay. But we got four or five different sauces that are classic to South Carolina. Okay. And Carolina Gold barbecue is kind of the, the mixture of all those sauces. Mm. So we got Carolina Gold barbecue chicken, and I'm doing a crab and shrimp stew. Mm. And that's it. That's amazing. How <laughs> you drop all that off and say, that's it? Hey. <laughs> hey. The kitchen wasn't but so big. So Chef BJ had to really take his time and spread the okra out across a few pans, rather than just caramelizing it all at once. Beyond the immediate limitations, though, I could tell there was a deep love there for Oprah. Let me mess a this love up. Story. Boy, we messed up this. Listen. You might, you might, you, you might kick me out of Richmond. Ki- you will, will kick me out the state. I sure will. <laughs> so, it's my favorite vegetable. So I'm one of those like, it's my. So it's one of the first things that I grew up planting okay. with my grandfather. Like when we had to go out on the. Um, my grandfather's from area called uh, Criminal Ferry, Daniel Island. So when we go out to the island, uh, on, to the ferry, um, also called Thomas Island, when we go out there, you, know, you ain't gonna sit at your grandparents' house and not do nothing. Right. So my first childhood memories is like, I remember him having an ox, number one. He had a tractor, sorry, he had a tractor, but he still had two oxen. But I remember going out there and he's teaching us how to hand pick the weeds and differentiating between the weeds and the actual plant. So I grew up eating okra. Now my grandmother, uh, his wife, my grandmother, she makes a mean okra soup. People in Charleston will tell you, black or white, shrimp and grits is cool, but the dish of Charleston is okra soup, which is kind of different than Gullah style gumbo, because okra soup will contain like butter beans and corn and some smoked meat and some shrimp in it. But um, 
I just love it. Now, I was saying about my grandmother, my grandmother cannot stand okra. Really? But I always say, if you marry a man in our region, you got to know how to make okra soup, even if you don't like it. Yeah. So that was one of those things that I just grew up um, loving it. I mean, I get it. I mean, I love it. I'll eat it raw off the bush. I'll eat it slimy. Um, I love the way I'm preparing it. One of my favorite dishes is the way I'm doing it right now. I'm like caramelizing it and with some onions. A lot of BJ's okra story has to do with his grandparents and his time in West Africa. So, but yeah, I just just love okra. Okra is one of those, I think one of those vegetables that tells us our story too. Before I went to the continent, I was watching some documentary and they were in West Africa somewhere and the okra was just slipping off the spoon. I was like, okay, that's what Granny was talking about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you go over there, it's slippery. They call it like swallows. They eat it like really slippery with like fufu. Mm-hmm. And someone with your hand, it's like a, just a swallow. You know, us here, it's usually typically over rice. Um, some people eat it with cornbread. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, I don't mind the sliminess. Mm-hmm. I don't mind it at all. Because it's more about like the history for you. The yes. Family experience. Yeah. Yes. I still grow my own okra too in my yard. Throughout the time I spent with BJ in the prep kitchen, he shared a lot about the histories of both okra and rice. He even gave me a sort of low country rice hall of fame. So these are the rice dishes that, you know, you know, it's called the Carolina Rice Kitchen for a reason and a lot of reason. And a lot of these dishes kind of was that collision of enslaved and European. But a lot of the perlos are straight derivatives of dishes that you see in West Africa. And it's funny because these scholars will always say, well, they thought perlo came from the British. Well, what did the British know about rice culture except for when they um, took what they took from India? Mm-hmm. And at that time, when they first came over here, the rice culture was coming through from West Africa. So, you know, perlo dishes like seafood rice that we do, seafood perlo. I was in Casamas. That's one of the things that they do there is a seafood-style perlo dish. Mm-hmm. So perlos are these rice dishes that we are very famous for. And a tomato perlo, like I said, is uh, a tomato base. We use fresh tomatoes, a little bit of tomato paste, um, and some spices, some seasonings, fresh garlic and ginger, and just kind of let that all cook together. And, you know, these are the dishes that we're really known for in the low country is our rice dishes. Um, so yeah, it's one of those rice dishes. Probably the, I would say between red rice, well, tomato perlo, hop and john, and our crab rice is probably some of the, the I don't say top three, but what people really, really, really love back home. Mm. Seafood rice too. Oh, I mean, let me rephrase that, shrimp and okra rice. Okay. What some people call limpin' Susan, mm. which is the quote unquote wife of no, hop and john. john. Yes. <laughs> Rice was weaponized against enslaved people brought to the Americas to grow it. The story about growing the rice and the, the, the engineering and ingenuity of our enslaved people, our ancestors, mm-hmm. who they, they brought that with them here. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, the bias that you get about, oh, you know, they taught us math and they taught us this and we didn't have this knowledge. But then you look at these old, these old cookbooks and they, they state that the expertise of growing rice came from the enslaved African. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's engineering, mm-hmm. that's science, mm-hmm. that's uh, astronomy, that's, that's being able to get into the river and build dikes, being able to cipher fresh water from salt water. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot. Right. So for people who didn't, who were just brainless, quote unquote, mm-hmm. folks, well, how, how brainless could you be mm-hmm. to know that? To do all that. Yes. So that's the one main thing I've, is, that I've really learned when I started studying the food, is particularly the rice culture. You know, how much, even though the rice was weaponized against our people um, because the trauma on those plantations were something serious, the knowledge that they had, the science and the mathematics is truly remarkable. And for BJ, the Black experience is at the forefront of Southern foodways. You know, I would say... Yes, the South in general, I think, is the home of American cuisine. Mm-hmm. 
you know, obviously you got the Southwest, you have, you know, California, West Coast cuisine. Um, but when we talk about the quote unquote new world, mm -hmm. Louisiana, low country, Virginia, um, these areas are, are special because mm -hmm. they hold unique flavor profiles and unique foods. Um, the Delta, Mississippi. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, some people say Mississippi had the best soul food, southern food in the, in the country. That's on for the first time this summer. I'm definitely going back. I, I've been dying to go to Mississippi. We 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 don't think about Mississippi a lot. We think about negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Mississippi is beautiful. Yeah, it feels good there too. It's, it's, it's slow. It's real slow. And and you know that's the Black Belt. Mm -hmm. Mississippi, Alabama. Mm -hmm. You know it's 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 deep. So. I would say Southern foodways in general, and when you talk Southern foodways, you cannot talk about it without the black experience. Not at all. I mean, if you want to talk cakes and pastries and stuff that, you know, came from the English, you know, kind of repertoire, you know, that we have taken into our own, like pound cake and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, but when you talk about just the pure vegetable cookery, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, the African experience, the black experience is truthfully the forefront of Southern Foodways. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Dara, Jamal Milner, and me, Lauren Francis. Our executive producer is Sarah McConnell. Aviva Costo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Lauren Francis. Thanks for listening.